0: Okay, can, can you all hear me now? Yeah. And, and okay, that's fine. Great, all right. Um, uh, welcome this evening. And I just wanted to um, say that this is the first of a series of talks about um, thinking through making. And I think many of you will be students here at the university and many of you students within this building of the Arnolfini, which we've um, recently uh, taken as the university for our studio spaces and a partnership with the uh, Arnolfini Gallery that's uh, located in the two floors um, above us. Uh, What I think is important about these talks is is an opportunity for our staff to talk a little bit not only about what they do, but about how they do it and how they think about what they do. Um, and I think that's something that as makers and practitioners will affect all of us. It's always interesting to hear somebody's insight, and especially those who have a lot of experience, as, um, as Richard does, and as the other staff who are going to present the talks in these series over the next few months. So um, what I'd like to do is to re- introduce Richard Kenton Webb, Uh, He's the programme leader for Drawing and Print, many of you may be students on that. Uh, If you're not or don't know about the programme, you can find out more on the university website. And if you wanted to see the work that's produced, that's possible to see at the shows at the end of the year. And so this particular talk, um, Drawing as a Way of Thinking, Uh, I don't know what it's about. I know that all of us hope to look at drawing as a way of thinking ourselves, develop our own ideas. I'm very much looking forward to Richard's talk. So, Richard, over
1: to you. Okay, thank you very much, Roger. Oh, good evening. Um, I am based upstairs, um, as Roger said, of, as programme leader of drawing, drawing and print. So we're on the fifth floor. We've got spectacular views of Bristol. Um, it's very inspirational up there, and I'd encourage you, if you're thinking about it as a course, uh, to come, uh, not this Saturday, but next Saturday. We've got an open day. Um, I'm a painter who draws and print actually I sculpt stained glass a lot but um, I'm a painter who prints and draws and I make all my own paint pigment and the substance of pigment is important to me as a colorist so I want to pull out an idea called drawing as a way of thinking and for this I'm going to show you a lot of images but I'm following a text that I've written so I would Um, appreciate that you don't ask me questions until the end, and then I'm very happy to answer your questions. If you could just save them, and then I'll come to them. But I really want to pull out a number of ideas to take you on a journey, and I do not want to be interrupted. (laughs) Um, Otherwise, it's like juggling with balls, though I can't juggle with balls. Uh, I really can't. I'm completely and utterly dysfunctional in that way. Um... I'm pulling out things up, and I want you to think about them as I go along. I've always considered drawing as a way of thinking. It is the way I make my thought life visible, the way I give my unconscious life a voice. It is the way I enable the unconscious to become manifest, and how I start to make some sense of the world in which I live. We all have sleeping histories and concerns that we, that we carry with us from the various stages of our lives. And for me, it is the act of spilling these onto the page through drawing that allows these elements to rise up and become conscious, to be seen through this thinking drawing. I can sense the state of my well-being, and know what my subconscious preoccupations are, as well as those issues that I had thought I had dealt with, but actually had not. I can realize what it is that I'm really concerned with and concerned about. I can reveal my hidden fears and see more clearly what looms ahead. So, is this therapy? No. It's more about finding exactly what has marinated my, in my unconscious over time and now needs to be voiced and brought out into the, into the living air. It is all those images, thoughts, memories, conversations that we have heard and those that we ourse- ourselves have had, all of which we've stowed away and which have needed to be digested. It is the world forever within us the sum of our very being that I am in dialogue with. But the question is, what do we do with these thoughts and memories once they surface? Can we, should we, attempt to make sense of them, like dreams? I'm not suggesting here that we should subject them to introspection or some sort of cold-blooded analysis. Rather look only at what comes readily to the surface when we allow spillage to occur. The visual poet makes sense, or makes thought visible differently from the word poet, or the sound poet, and the outcomes are different for the reader, listener, or looker. Three writers, in various ways, have helped me to explore this. First, Winifred Bion, postulated in Second Thoughts, that thoughts themselves can be in search of a thinker. Also, that thoughts can exist without a thinker, and then equally that a thinker can be in search of thoughts. This beautiful concept, where the idea of infinitude is prior to any idea of the finite, is very captivating, for the finite is one for the darkness and formless infinite. This is expresses so very well for me, exactly how, in my 57 years of living painting, sculpting, printing and drawing that work comes out into, into being, from all the infinite stuff in my life. It is processed through my brain and senses and out through the stuff of material and their qualities and personalities. In fact, the experience and therefore the knowledge of the sensuality of the appropriate material for this language-making is the question. It is essential to finding the right translation, to f- the right fit to the, f- to the felt thought, to the materials, the right materials to be used. Secondly, Jacques Lacan proposed that the unconscious is structured like a language. So the unconscious must be apprehended in its experience of rapture between perception and consciousness in that non-temporal locus that Freud called another scene. The unconscious manifests itself precisely at those moments when our conscious defense mechanisms are at their weakest. When we're asleep in those accidental slips of the tongue, when we say something that we didn't really mean to say, but often mean, through jokes that frequently reveal more about us than what we think. When we make such Freudian slips at times, when language falls and stumbles, the unconscious reveals itself. We are in fact finishing Fishing out of ourselves the thing representations or presentations, as opposed to word presentations. This is part of the act of being a visual poet, assembling the marinated court thoughts that have swum in our minds for many years. And then, as we draw from them, we start giving these form, shape and meaning. Yet, if the subconscious is a language, then surely this signifies that it has a form. And if that is so, is this form potentially knowable and readable? And can we become literate in this hidden inner form, realizing it and bringing it into our consciousness and giving it substance, materiality? This is crucial to my creative practice and well-being as an artist. With the tools of drawing, I can disclose the hidden aspects of my lived life, use drawing as markers to accumulate a kind of map that shows a risen inner world. On reflection, this can chart um, and inform and steer that I can see the importance of my interior life, as opposed to those urgent distractions that can cloud the direction of the course of one's work. Thirdly, D. W. Winnicott in Playing in Reality calls the place where cultural experience is located as the potential space, the space between the individual and their environment, the third area. This is where drawing, this is where through drawing, painting and sculpture, thought become visible where our inter- internal world meets the external world, where the world of our invisible thought becomes manifest through our making in marks, scribbles, paint, print. It is in this third area where it becomes visible. So we behave like a creator, where there was a nothing, now into this nihil something appears, Thought starts to solidify. I want to talk about the transitional object. Our drawings and makings are extensions of ourselves. And we mould and form them into them. Into them what we want from them. So to begin with, what we create is ours. It's us. Because we have transformed the materials into a particular something... But soon, because the work will be separated from us and stand apart from us, it will become itself. Of course, the artist is responsible for the work and, in general, artists sign their work claiming authorship and ownership of copyright. But because the artwork exists on its own, whether well-composed or not, whether succeeding or failing in its creation, we then move on to another kind of discussion... We can talk about aesthetics, uh, taste, fashion, aspect-citedness. sightedness. is about an audience, amongst other things. It's equally interesting and worthy of debate, but it's not part, actually, of what I want to talk about. But there is a codicil to this, though. When we, the makers, are creating the work, perhaps doing so with all sorts of peculiar intentions and loading it with meanings that we want it to say and do. Does it really do it? And when we exhibit it, or is it, simply, is it simply independent from us so that we are not there with the work? Because we can't act as its spokesperson to explain its true meaning or what we intend to do with it. So does it work without us? Even if we've handwritten down our thoughts on how the work should be read or listened to or looked at, observations that may be lost, the title notes or label mislaid, the work of art will stand there naked just as an object, a thing trying to be itself, with no name as such. So the question is, does it work? And these are things we as artists are confounded with all the time there it is then the work of art all alone it will have to stand alone to answer for itself all on its own without the essays and all the critics thoughts even without the artist's words without the packaging or any other information of how to read it and understand it when we the viewer approach a work of art the interpretation of its meaning is down to us alone it rests with our ability to read and, and read art and culture as to whether it works or not. Does it do what it was made to do and fulfil the intentions of its creator? After all, it's only a thing. It's only paint or canvas or wood or a construction of plaster or bronze, etc. If we're not really careful, we may slip into a not dissimilar crisis of the image that erupted in the 8th 8th to 9th century Europe. They saw the rise of the image as a symbol of power and magic and they reacted against it by iconoclasm, the destruction of images. And then the motivation was a theological one whose argument lay in Old Testament interpretation of the Ten Commandments which forbade the making and worshipping of graven image. Now there are other, or additional, or are they the same, accusations and games being played. And the critics are against overarching consumerism and high investments with the suggestion that the art we are being presented with has a touch of the emperor's new clothes. Value is a strange thing, as is fashion and taste. There are many reasons why one work is given a value and worth than another and thus becomes a commercial success as opposed to simply a creative success. Perhaps the motivation of its making and how it came into being in the artist's mind is a profounder question to ask as an artist. I think that is the question I continually ask of all my works. Risk, sacrifice and curiosity... Sometimes, where a work began and where it ends, ends up miles away from each other, as an acorn appears totally different from the grown oak tree. The long journey from concept to finished object is a good place to start our inquiry. Where is the freedom and slack in the journey? Will we accept any slack? Are we allowing the piece of work to grow up and be itself? This all depends on the openness of the artist and the constraints they put upon play and opportunity for what Beckett calls the suffering of being as opposed to habit and what we know and what we can and what we can do and what we can do day after day and crank out. We need to ask ourselves how vulnerable we are and willing we are in our creative process by not knowing if our work will succeed or fail, or even what outcomes it might have, because we all know there is much more of our inner lives in us than we can express, but we can't as yet quite reach this or know what it is. An artist's work is not about being satisfied with what we know or becoming complacent with those tricks. What we pull out to solve our problems so that a kind of mediocrity can creep into our creativity. What it all boils down to is this. How much are we willing to sacrifice? How willing are we to take risks? These are big questions in the growing up of the work. It is about the commitment to remain curious, to be open to change. All this sounds a bit like parenting children into adults, but the similarity is fitting and the question it raises for the artist are similar, especially over areas of control and ambiguity in the work because we need to ask ourselves, where are we making space in our work to surprise ourselves with our own abilities and what we're making? We would be foolish to think we know ourselves so well As not to accept new possibilities of thinking to materialize. But whether this occurs, it's down to, I believe, to the balance we allow between instinct and reason. Do we tend to reason everything out and apply logic to the outcomes, or do we trust more to instinct and gut feeling? The world we live in is an extraordinary place, and here we are. Encountering our own culture and society is an incredible experience and journey for each one of us, whether for better or for worse, because it deeply informs us. It is the beginning of our continuing engagement with the world and with everything that is among and around us. It's where we start to make sense of all that is around us and build up a worldview. And from that, we begin, to, we, we begin to do so from the many places that we live in. And we take those different places that we holiday or we visit, and our worldview physically, mentally, and metaphysically derives from all that we witness in different places in different cultures, in different lands, in different climates, with different foods, with the different sounds, with different music, with the different literature, with the different thinking, with different art and poetry, and so on and so on. And as we move from our familiar starting points, we develop our own personal histories, make our own connections to these places and creating affinities and links with them. Sometimes these quite specific have things like smell and tastes and sound associated with them for us, where the place talks back to us. It may suggest other associations, those places, often surprisingly different ones. Places may sing songs of other senses, peoples, emotions and happenings. They may suggest other things, perhaps the histories that we carry, for better or for worse, of other areas of circumstances, which affect how we view the present as much as the past. These histories may color our worldview, perhaps even prejudice us or blind us. Places are imbued with memories, residues and the echoes of events, conversations, events that occurred there for us and have now become part of their fabric for us. They are like an embossed print But it takes sensitivity and time and the willingness to be open to such possibilities to experience them. As human beings, we are complex. So very much more than one-dimensional beings seen through the single lens of a one-eyed camera. We have taste, smell, touch, sound, emotion, well-being, balance, memory, intellect. All of these continually impact on how we look at the world. Whether consciously or unconsciously. Yet, how do we develop awareness of the physicality of being in a place? How receptive and sensitive are we to its qualities? How vulnerable are we to the play of our emotions and senses on what we see? The act and art of seeing is also affected by our, what Wittgenstein called our aspect blindness and our aspect sightedness. To various parts, Of of our visual language. This influences how we look and read, let alone how we translate visual experience into the coherence of a drawing. Just as remembering is knowing exactly what we want to recall of a particular moment, so we need to be, be aware of which particular aspects of any experience in life it is that we want to reconsider something complicated by the fact that so much of our sensory life is invisible. The land itself, the landscape, can be seen as a place of discourse, a place of conversation. This is one of my concerns. If we allow it, a place can talk to us, of course not literally, but perhaps metaphorically, allegorically or metaphysically, of meaning, it can tell of residues, echoes of the past, of the future. In order to listen, however, we must be vulnerable and open and choose, in Beckett's words, the suffering of being, to be awake to new things. And we need to be curious, to move away from old habits and to perceive the world with fresh eyes, where emotional essays are encouraged and allowed. We can translate our feelings into made images. To begin with, It's good to examine our motives and behaviour. Do we go out of our way to find new places or seek out potential spaces that offer or harbour a translation of our feelings where those little sensations start to add up to something else? This can be for many reasons. Sometimes it's because we feel feel safe in a place or we can think clearly um, when we're in that place or perhaps something has happened for us there or for our family, so that to make a drawing in that exact place, in effect, makes it kind of like an altar, a touchstone, a witness to what has happened there. It is then by drawing and attempting to make sense in the third area, through our scribbles and marks, that we hardwire an understanding of how our 3D looking translates into 2D looking. I want to talk a bit about... um, Observational drawing. Observational drawing is a wonderful tool to help us make sense of what is in front of our eyes, of comprehending how the things that we see fit together. It's about composition. If we begin by looking at a single viewpoint, we can start to see the way in which small shapes, both negative and positive, interact with each other, like pieces of a jigsaw, and then become a whole, defining where the picture begins and ends. And it is only when we stop to question ourselves about all that is before us in an intense, disciplined way that we wake up to the fact But this is hard work and there are no shortcuts. But the rewards are huge. And the more the artistic artist connects and commits time to this way, of translating 3D-looking onto a 2D sheet of paper, then the deeper the re- their reservoir is of the knowledge of doing so. And all that remembered looking and translating becomes available to us, available to us to improvise from and invent, enabling us to commute, uh, communicate our interior world and ideas into some form, kind of form of ordered composition, Picture-making, limiting our languages. Whoops. The flat surface of a drawing, print, or painting holds huge potential, not least the compositional act of making a picture. As an artist, the music of the picture, its rhythms and repetition, its shaped lines, and forms are the heart of the work, of the thought trying to be made visible, But the picture must then work within the rectangle or square or oval or round of this world that's being made within its boundary, in its worldview and world picture. It's got to work, succeed, add up as an independent picture. By limiting the languages one uses, it is one way of getting the hidden in your head out and getting the composition to work as a whole. We need to understand and be aware as artists that neurologically the five visual languages of tone, shape, space and colour and movement have their own separate areas in the brain. Thus we need to exercise and use each one of them independently in order to understand how they work with all their functions and possibilities so that we can become literate in them and use and use them, and conscious of their peculiarities and nuances. For instance, by using pure tone with no color and no line, we can see complicated sorry, complications that are always there, but now suddenly become apparent, so that we can untangle them. Likewise, we can use pure line with no tone or color. The absence makes us invent equivalence for what is missing. There is nothing more than the absence of color to suggest color. How do you do this? Well, pose with this conundrum or puzzle, we invent, we jump, as Kierkegaard said. We jump to alternatives or equivalents. This is the genius of limitation. After all, it's not any quicker But hopefully, it will enable you to get the idea or emotion or feeling out of you in the first place. To turn this kind of stuff inside you out into some form of order and sense, it's very hard. So, anything that can help is invaluable. To someone who's looking over your shoulder, your doodles as you make them might look like complete nonsense. But to you, the translator, it's about finding a good likeness of subject, its color, its rhythm, its space, its sounds, its touch, its emotions, etc. because you're attempting to grasp that which is invisible in here. It's important to ask the question to yourself, despite the urgency of getting the image and all the many possible ideas and solutions you have for its true representation on paper, What is the critical essence of what I'm looking at? Even what I'm looking at might be in here or out there. Creative types. One such, one much overlooked fact is that visually we are of two creative types. By nature, we're either haptic-sighted or visually-sighted. The difference of degree... The differences are of degree and not of kind. This hugely affects the way we perceive the world and make our representations of it. Are we making representations and equivalents of touch or sight? The principal concern of the visual sighted artist is to depict the things around him or her, to bring them closer, therefore, Colour is more about giving an impression of colour. To the haptic, it's not about what something looks like, but more what it feels like. The differences of surface, the textures and temperatures. Colour for the haptic is more about expression and symbolism than realistic colour and and correspondence. It is about depicting the effect of the looking on him or her. It is the perception of his or her inner world out into the picture. The haptic approximates his impressions or her impressions because everything springs from his or her bodily experience. All of us are somewhere within that visual haptic continuum and some artists are both. But like so much in creativity, Awareness of where you sit and your relative strengths can be balanced and remedied by practice and exercises where you're not. With its corresponding relative weaknesses, we must consciously and actively use our perception to become more sensitive to our haptic or visual orientation. My students here on the drawing and print degree, which I lead upstairs, often complain that they can't draw. Now, what this means, often, is that their drawing is not an accurate rendering of what exactly lies before them, like a photograph, which leads on to the age-old discussion, what's a good drawing? And your answer to that question will give away how you naturally perceive the world. For the way we experience vision is so much more than merely the receiving of physical images into our eyes. We're much more complex, thinking, feeling beings who live both inside and outside the body. I want to talk now about the stuff of paint. Drawing and painting, then, is much more than just the production of a visual image, a composition which holds a story or narrative and which can be figurative or purely abstract. There is the haptic transference and emo- of emotional likeness through the materiality of different substances. Pigments may be applied to the different surfaces of wood, cloth, and paper with their various colors and tones or transformed into the stuff of paint or coloured dirt, each with its own expressive language possibilities. Physical gestures or movements may be captured through the mark-making and the substance of stuff. A punctured or stitched surface may resonate with a certain lived experience, felt like a glance or a smile beside the spoken phrase. It could be evocative evocative, as the scent of mushrooms in the early dawn or the crack of submerged ice for the sailor. Similarly, the ability of the texture and substance of the surface and paint to capture what is unseen and wryly hidden can be compared with the way in which deep sweet fragrance of primroses you can smell in the dark may call to mind other days and other circumstances What must not be forgotten is that there is a certain alchemy in the making of pictures and materials because a painting is so much more than a simple transfer of pigment to paper. There is the transference of our humanity onto the flat surface, the exposing of the third area in a picture. Colour. Colour is so huge as to be a language in itself. It's perception occupying a separate part of the visual cortex. There are other languages, as I've said, tone, line, forms, movement, space, amongst others, all of which are heavy with associations and intensely subjective, as well as being loaded with cultural meanings and histories. So as we start a drawing, the question is which of these languages do we put aside? Because it, is, because it is much easier to work with one or two visual areas at a time to find a subject's particular dynamic equivalent. Thus, we limit ourselves to stimulating only one or two of our visual languages and use them to find the vocabulary to translate our ideas to make them visible it is important to choose the right language for the task, for the right task. I find, for instance, that using just pure-shaped line drawing with charcoal pencil on an off-white paper is how I find form, shapes, and rhythms that, that, that can help me hallucinate to envision colour that I'm looking for and thinking about. Through line, I can find certain rhythms the likenesses for sounds, for the personality of the colours. I am thinking here a lot about synesthesia, the mixed association of the senses. I'm thinking here... Sorry. So line, line drawing becomes a shorthand for colour, where there is no colour. It is like the word vinegar. Though no vinegar exists here in this room, well, it might do, but... Um, already you can anticipate and taste it in your mouth by just thinking about vinegar. Wonderful. Though no vinegar exists here, already we can anticipate it. The word itself conveys taste, smell, sound, and color, as also it does particular emotions and feelings. I believe color is much more complex and important to us as human beings than we understand at present. There are aspects to colour that go beyond what we feel or intuit. I think there is other in the language of colour. What I mean by this is that just as Plato suggested that there are perfect forms that lie behind every form on earth, so that what we see on earth are just physical copies of the perfect forms that lie beyond the created universe in a kind of metaphysical sphere. I believe that every colour has a a specific form or dynamic shape that resonates inside it, and this can be intuited or felt, but perhaps it is only obliquely. We know, too, that colour for us resonates with emotional memories as well as with all the cultural meanings and associations of the time in which we live. Colour faculty also can be lost if you read Oliver Sacks' works, where someone, an artist, actually loses his colour sight and only sees thereafter in black and white. What we have... While we have all of these things, of course, and we've grown up with colour, whether simply through naming the different colours or looking at them and their names um, more intensely, what I have found as as an artist and an educator is that most people do not have a very deep internal knowledge of colour. It's all rather superficial and vague. Even artist understanding may be limited, or even fearful, such that they use colour only tonally, in other words, as light and dark paint, rather than in sympathy with their personalities as a contrast or emotional value or or resonance. So color is is both complex and kind of simple, depending on how much we want to engage in it as a language. All the five other visual languages are teachable, and so I attempt as a teacher to facilitate students, first to see the different aspects of them, then to read it, and finally, the hardest of all, to use it to express themselves. What we need to understand about color from the beginning is the profound truth that it only exists as a constant in our heads. Outside of us, it is just the confusion and array of light. Thus, the notion of a color is only in our heads. Neurologically, what we do is we simplify color light into color, constants, sorry. Neurologically, we simplify light into color constants in order to grapple with it, to name it and to utilize it. This is similar to what the artist does with color, for better or worse, and is intensely subjective. It is through this act of simplifying that we limit ourselves And in drawing, I I try to hunt down equivalents for the deeply complicated and delicate mysteries that I know lie deep inside my being. It is how I stalk these thoughts I have caught when I'm out and about. Because thinkers certainly do find thoughts. Thinkers go looking for thoughts. And as Wilfred Beyond suggested, just as thoughts seem to go looking for and find thinkers... However ludicrous and ridiculous this all sounds, I think there is, and I believe there is, some truth, a great truth in this. As an artist, I am highly intuitive, and I like to make space and time to play in my work. So I allow the, the, the ideas I carry to surface and to leak out, all and anything that I've been pondering so that, so that I can spill my thinking out as if like onto blotting paper so it can be soaked up. And to do this, I also look at other artists, musicians, poets, or composers, because they all stimulate me to feel and think differently. It opens me up to new thoughts, new experiences, and also I recognize similarities with my own journey. In 2014, I had a residency for two months in Queenstown, Tasmania, and I found the environment and landscape of the area extraordinary. It is a kind of place that the sixth century Columba would have called a thin place. Somewhere where thought comes easily, as opposed to a thick place where you can't think. Where spillage between things is easy and possible where there are glitches in our understandings, is what I would call a metaphysical place. This returns to our discussion of the land as discourse. It is where I I wander close to the very edge of the sea that I sense an almost physical relationship, like the sand upon the beach, or when climbing up over rocks facing the ocean, that the land speaks to me most eloquently and profoundly... This kind of landscape on the edge becomes for me a thin place. It is where associations readily surface and I find I catch ideas easily. It is where I go to think, where I can begin to grasp an understanding of very complex issues like masculine and feminine, chaos and order, consciousness and subconsciousness, mothering and fathering, the personalities of colour, the different gravities of tone, to name but a few. Here analogies, resemblances, associations surfaced easily, helping me to define these great mysteries through the equivalents and likenesses that they seem to suggest. Being physically present on an edge, poised between fields of opposition, draws me into the third area, that space, that space between the abstract and the concrete where anything can happen because it is available to be filled. Where specifics begin to attach to a place, it starts to yield and to become comprehensible. The untranslatable mysteries start to become visible. We may start to find a form for them through, though the mysteries remain invisible, But somehow, through another medium, they can become graspable in such a place where normally we're confounded and it appears nonsense. But it becomes reasonable and starts to make sense. And this sense is suddenly knowable in our finiteness. It solidifies in the twinkling of an eye to reveal itself like the architecture of a cloud. But perhaps because it is so other- to our conscious languages, it is only through association or by suggesting a likeness that translation can be attempted. Other types of places, such as a barren wilderness or a moor or a desert, can also act as a catalyst for profound insight because of the very absence of people and their inability to sustain continuous life. The same is true of the highest mountains or isolated islands. These offer associations and metaphors by their very difference to our normal understanding of what constitutes daily life. But it's not only the absence of human life that provokes thought, but the differences of scale. Like in Norfolk, the flatness of the Fenland makes the sky enormous, its weight noticeably pressing down onto the surface of the earth and creating a a perspective of immense dome-like curvature where mankind is but a small reference point. All these conversations with the landscape cause thoughts to take hold in us, such that metaphysical ideas attached to forms, the grandeur of the night sky and the heavens, in all their bewildering glory of pattern and complexity of structure, ask questions of becoming, of the peculiar order of things. Those moments when we peer into the hidden depth of the universe, pondering the invisible world, this is the stuff that makes its way back into artists' creations and what has been perceived unintelligibly beyond our reason and comprehension, yet powerfully read on surfaces in the potential space of a drawing. We do not know why, as I propose, Uh, a color can have an inherent form, uh, or a color form, that is beyond simply subjective synesthesia. Yet while we cannot as yet wholly enter this other language world, we can still push at the door and sometimes perceive it fragmentally and grasp its possibilities. Oliver Sacks, in another um, piece of work, talks about savants, being able to see the numbers and structures and dimensions of the universe, which though invisible to us, are to them like an open book. So perhaps this means there are other readings of the world that lie dormant for us, that while we are now blind to it, we once had sight or might have sight, it is, and it might be like synesthesia, that we were all apparently born with as a facility, but most of us lose or diminish as we get older. Or finally, like dyslexia, where neural pathways are unusually structured, yet produce some of the most creative of individuals. We must remain open to perceive differently. We must allow our education system to be broader, embrace different learning styles and methods of understanding the world in which we live and how to to make sense of the world through making. I want to talk about triggers. Lastly, I want to discuss the idea that a place can act as a trigger, um, a trigger for the unconscious. In my own practice, I always take sketchbooks whenever I travel, so as to be ready to catch whatever surfaces. In my series um, of 60 multi-pigmented cuts called Thoughts in Search of a Thinker, each section was a response to being in a different part of Europe. The places were as, as as diverse as Iceland, Brittany, Normandy, Regensburg, which is in in southern Germany, southeastern Spain, the English Channel, as well as my home in the Cotswolds, England. The idea I had been pondering was quite simple, but one that I'd found hugely difficult to comprehend. It is from a text that I read many many years ago and that I've been dazzled by for most of my adult life, and for which I have constantly tried to make sense of. It is the first few chapters in the book of Ezekiel where the prophet witnesses a theophany. The language is rich, dense, and noisy, yet totally other. But to my knowledge, no other artist has ever succeeded in making sense of the passage in any pictorial form, except perhaps... The composer, French composer Olivier Messian, in his 1.36 minute organ piece called, excuse my French, Le Yeu de la Ruse, which is as near as to how I imagine the description of the scene when I've read it. In 2010, when I was completing the orange series of liner cuts in the colour form series, I thought that before I started yellow, I should think about the, 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 the first complementaries of orange and blue which is basically a hot-cold contrast. When I was attempting to doodle this and what it might look like, I realised I was on the old ground of Ezekiel's vision, which I had last attempted in a series of huge paintings in my last London show with Benjamin Rhodes in 1994 in London. In these paintings, extraordinary goings-on were witnessed in the sky, where things not normally visible are seen, where the very architecture of the other is glimpsed. However, as I visited these countries in different locations over the two years, from 2010 till 2012, the drawings took on very different, different feel. Long-forgotten, deep musings started to appear. For instance, in Iceland, the sea as a subject surfaces. Two places I've known, the Solent and Chichester in Chichester Harbour, where my parents were keen sailors, and the coast of Northumbria, and Lindisfarne, which I'd visited and had a show, an exhibition a number of years ago, seemed to dominate my thinking. Suddenly I was able to make sense of the mudflats and shallow waters that populated by markers and strange sounds that always seemed to me to equate with constellations and journeyings. I was truly not prepared for their entrance into my work. It was quite a surprise, and yet a great relief to get the subject and its weight out of my memories and into some kind of sense at last. Between the series of 60 um, linocuts of thoughts in search of a thinker and going to Tasmania, I travelled to Belgium with my drawing and print degree students from UWE. And over the week in the evenings in my hotel, I made a series of 15 drawings. And this became a series called Still, oh, Still Life with Blackbirds. By the end... Um, I, I oh, blah 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 blah. At the time, oh yeah. By the time I got to drawing number three, I realized that the work was taking on the series was taking on um, a distinct narrative quality with a murder mystery flavor. So on my return to England, I photocopied all the drawings and sent them to an old friend who's a crime writer, Dr. Joe Reardon. I wanted to see if I might tempt her to turn them into a story in response. And this series of work, like the companion piece um, to Paradise Lost that I was making, is concerned with uh, the second of the two complementary colours of light and dark contrast of yellow and violet. As with the first contrast of orange and blue in the thought series, the work had become more figurative as I tried to make sense of the colours' dynamic. Now, Joanne did respond, but mixed up the order, I had given the drawings to her and created a new one. So goodies became baddies. And the whole meaning was turned inside out and upside down. But what was interesting was that because my drawings had no title and no numbering, they could become confused. And the original order, which was now lost, so the drawings were free to be reshuffled. And the, the rather wonderful truth was that in fact the sequence of drawings could become many different kind of stories depending on the individual viewer. What this then suggests regarding a series of drawings or painting or prints is that multiple images can lead themselves to multiple narrative external to the creator who made them, depending, on, of course, on how much opportunity there is for ambiguity in, in the image and in its interpretation, where the viewer can never quite get to the bottom of what is happening or what the pieces are really all about. They can be read or finished in many different ways. It's about keeping images open so that even the makers themselves can be surprised by the seemingly hidden content revealed. The images are, however, never simply illustrations. They are illuminations using forms of language that lie beyond the written word, in that third area where words falter and stumble. Yet while in one writer's hands the images can be translated into something fixed, at the same time in another's, they can become something entirely different. It's all about that art of enigma and the enigmatic quality of the reading. I want to now talk about my, going back to the Lark residency. My two month residency in Australia was to be centred around the exploration, investigation, and behaviour of qualities of the pigments of the colour yellow, a colour that is in abundance, in particular, in the town and landscape of Queenstown in Western Australia. The idea of this filled me with great excitement because I had not a clue at all as to what might turn up in the work other than that it would be seen through the medium of the colour yellow. The first drawings and paintings to surface had the appearance of a culmination or conclusion or resolution to the 60 prints, Thoughts in Search of a Thinker. But there is a crucial difference. These works deal with the subject of thought rather than any reference at all to Ezekiel. Like this talk, they deal with the artist, me, finding or looking for thoughts, trying to understand or make plain how I make sense of the world. So at the beginning of March 2014, I found myself all alone sitting in a huge empty studio in the old bank in Queenstown, wondering where to begin in such a new and foreign land, and then out poured this stuff, 31 paintings and over 50 drawings. If you want to see, there's a whole vlog. I I give the stuff at the end um, of these films. All the work I made in Tab- Tasmania is psychoanalytical in nature, about thought process and how we deal with thinking. It is like a statement of intent of who I am and how I function, but I'm only saying this in retrospect. (coughs) The next work that I began to make was the Submerged Town series, which stems from a picnic I was taken. In my first week of the residency, we canoed out to an island on on a lake where I was told about an old mining town called Crotty that lay beneath the waters. This immediately reminded me of Ladybough Reservoir in Derbyshire, which I had visited as a boy from school, where the villages of Alshopton and Derwent had been submerged as a result of flooding caused by a dam built in the 1940s. And where at, um, at low tide, at low tide, at low water, the church tower stood proud. I actually used to believe I had actually seen this, but I've recently read the church was actually demolished in 1959. Though in dry summers, part of the village can still be seen. This shocking, haunting piece of history um, was soon soon after compounded for me by hearing Claude Debussy's uh, The Sunken Cathedral for solo piano, which has been a favourite ever since. So there I was again in my first week, canoeing out to this lake, suddenly being told these bits of brick in the middle of flipping nowhere were a town. Um, so a lifetime of c- conscious and unconscious thoughts on this powerful subject's surface. How our hidden histories and that all, that all that cannot be seen still affects and infects the presence and how it lied, lies dormant. In, in this painting, you see a dog sleeping. You know, let sleeping dogs lie. It's a bit of a pun. Anyway. So the analogies are plenty. The work that came after this was called Full, Town, um, a Full Moon Over Queenstown and the Landscaper's Discourse. These two large paintings and subsequent smaller pieces came out of a failed trip that we were supposed to go up to the north to visit an, art, uh, an artist called B. Maddock who had been my grandmother's lodger way back in the 1960s. And the trip was cancelled because one of my hosts, Raymond Helena's four whippets called Jack, was was injured. There he is. Um, So suddenly I had to... We we were halfway across the island and I had to come back. And I returned to the studio. And the studio, because I was away for about four days, had been cleared. Um, And um, I'd kind of got to the end of a whole current series of work... And then suddenly I was left thinking, what on my earth to do? So, like always, I started to draw. I started to draw to see what was important in my thoughts at the time. What was surfacing or what I'd been musing on. And it seemed like the early morning walks seemed to become important that I I took every morning with Raymond and Helena and the Four Whippets. And during the walks, the three of us would start long conversations about art, "'making and creativity. "'We would set out in the pitch dark of the early morning "'when the full moon was out, or the moon was out, "'or no moon was out, "'throwing light into the oddly barren contours of the paths "'so that they appeared even more extraordinary than usual. "'The desolate hills in this area "'with their extraordinary hues of yellow and orange ochre "'were covered in the stumps of old trees. "'Lying just at the head fallen,' cut by miners in the late 19th century. What was truly incredible was that these stumps hadn't rotted because the wood was so oily. It was at these times that the strange, unique song of the place started to make sense, and I began to realise that it was this particular difference that was importance to everything I was looking at. It was about this time that I, um, I found and dug up and made... Um, Made into pigment, an extraordinary purple earth from the very pathway I walked upon, and decided to use this for the ground of the painting. So it really was. So it really was the very earth of the Queenstown. Have I done that here? This led on to a series, um, a narrative of walking, and how it reminds me of other places and memories back in England the device of the museum display stand came to signify and contain the specificity and particular of the location of the walk. This idea had originated a number of years ago before in my color form sculptures that I attempted to make an idea of the finiteness as opposed to infiniteness of existence like with the work in Paradise Lost. Finally, in, I, I worked and made work about the Queenstown mines and the quarrying there, and this warranted a third, fifth series. And I responded to this subject immediately on my arrival after seeing a mine called the Iron Blow. And and then we slowly descended down into Queenstown, and the terraces below the mine, dotted with these ancient tree stumps, brought to mind Dante's depiction of the journey into the underworld, the divine comedy, his great allegorical poem, of the introspection of the self. It is not surprising that during my residency, I found myself pre- preoccupied with the images of thought and thinking process processes, psychoanalysts and journeying. This extraordinary rupturing of the earth in the middle of a, a rainforest and the mines made for a continuing stream of thought about slips and associations. So to finish... My worldview as a visual poet is no more important than anyone else's. But it is certainly different and unique because it's mine. What value these thoughts have for the world, their success or future, is not determined by the fickleness of fashion or taste. It is determined by the fact that they exist, by the fact that they are now visible and that I am answerable to them and for them. My thoughts have found form as works of art. They are out there in the world, speaking of something in particular, doing their business as thoughts, looking for a thinker to see, the th- to see and think and respond to them. All of which beg- brings me to my pursuit as an artist, as one who tries to make sense of the world through making, through creating poetical equivalents that bring meaning and value to the wonderful truth of being alive.
0: very much. Um, I don't know if there's anybody got any questions or anything they'd like to ask Richard about the work that he's shown. I think there is a microphone around at the top there if anybody would like to ask anything. Or maybe perhaps ask afterwards um, uh, outside. I think that would be the best way to do it. Yeah. yeah. Maybe a full up. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you all very much for coming. Thank you, Richard, for a really fa- fascinating talk and a lot of excellent work for us. <laughs> really, really